0: Good morning. <laughs> Pastor Ron told me last week, he goes, you know, I should have checked your medical records before I hired you. I, said, well, I think in the last 19 years, I was thinking back, I don't think I've ever missed a teaching appointment. And in the last two months, I've missed four Sundays, sometimes just the two of them, the Saturday before I had to call out. But uh, COVID has finally left our home. We waited two and a half years to get it. We were proud of that. And then... Um, but our kids were able to get to their first day of school this week and uh, I can't believe school's already back in for these poor kids that are still wanting to jump in the pool all day long. But we are starting a new series today called Life in Him that will take us to the end of the Gospel of John. We'll be in John chapter 13. If you have a Bible and you wanna open it up or if you open the church app, you can follow along in the scriptures there with us as well. Chapters 13 through 17 are the final hours before Jesus was arrested. And so this really is a behind-the-scenes look at the leader. There's no crowds, there's no big speeches that are being given to, you know, Gentiles and and Jews. This is when Jesus is spending time with the 12 moments before he was taken in the garden, arrested, and and then uh, led to his crucifixion. So we always wonder when we're thinking about leaders and celebrities and different people, like, are, are they real? You know, what are they really like? Are they being a hypocrite? Are they acting right now? We always wonder, we want some transparency. We want them to be vulnerable so we can know who they are. Have you ever overheard a conversation and the person didn't know that you were listening? It's either either about you or about someone else. Either way, if they don't know you're listening, that's as real as it gets. We are overhearing this conversation with Jesus and he is kinda caught being such a genuine and amazing God. Now. There's one celebrity in particular that always seems to get caught being good behind the scenes, and it happened again last month. And it's not when he's acting, it's not when he's giving a speech, it's behind the scenes. And this uh, this was reported on Twitter, not by himself saying, look how amazing I am, but by somebody else. Somebody in the media saw this interaction. We're going to put it on the screen so you can see how he was caught doing good. This was Andrew Kimmel watching this uh, nearby, and Keanu Reeves bumps into a kid after a long international flight, and this kid starts firing off questions left and right at him. He goes, well, why were you in London? Well, I was filming a documentary. Well, I saw you online. You were at the Grand Prix, pronouncing the X. (laughs) Yes, the Grand Prix in a French accent without correcting him, F1 race cars. Well, do you drive? Not F1, but I like riding motorcycles. And the kid kept going. Do you live in New York? No, I live in LA. How long are you gonna be in New York? Four days, no, no, five, five days. Why are you in New York? Well, I'm gonna see a Broadway show. What What show? American Buffalo or Mame? Where are you staying in New York? He even answers that, in Midtown. By this time, the kid was running out of questions, so Keanu started grilling him. Why were you in Europe? What galleries did you go to in Paris? What was your favorite? This man could not have been nicer, especially after an international flight. I thought I'd share this because the dude is a class act and little moments like this can make such a big difference in people's lives. We need more Keanu's. And you were like, oh, you like the movies, I guess. Yeah, now the reaction was extreme to this. and It was actually amazing how people reacted. Look at some of the comments that people were posting. If there was ever a negative story about this guy, my brain wouldn't accept it. He's literally a walking angel. Somebody else said, in this broken world, be a Keanu. This made me smile. Another said, the hero we need, not the hero we deserve. The least pretentious man in Hollywood, one of the nicest people around, and then get this last one. In, if you're in doubt how to act, just ask WWKD. What would Keanu do? Not what would Jesus do, what would Keanu do? All of these are kind of pointing, where people are saying, no, we want someone good. We want someone to be nice, to be real behind the scenes. And Keanu is, is showing up as that person. And so people desperately want others to be real. We, we hate when people are being fake with us or behind the scenes and it's not really who they are. Today's scripture is going to show us that who Jesus is behind closed doors and how he wants to inspire us to be people of integrity, both publicly and privately in our lives. And so we're going to see four characteristics of being a genuine disciple in public and in our private lives. And it starts in John chapter 13, as Jesus is having one final meal with his disciples. It says he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist, After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said, Lord, are you gonna wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you don't realize what I'm doing now, but later you will understand. Nope, said Peter, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. But Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that is why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. In that time period, when people would be walking around with open sandals on dirt roads, it was customary when you had a meal with someone to wash your feet. Often you'd wash your own feet. Sometimes a servant in the household would do this Jesus is taking the lowest job and serving the other disciples. And so we see a genuine disciple, a true disciple serves and serves sacrificially, serves with the the right heart. A true disciple is going to serve. Now, what's the reaction of the 12 in this moment? Well, you see it with Peter. Nope, you're not gonna do that. You're above that, you're the leader. I'm not going to let you serve me. The reaction is, no, this doesn't make any sense for a leader to serve. But then Jesus shows them because he's teaching them a two-part lesson, one spiritual and one about serving, one about salvation, one about how they should serve and bless others around them. The spiritual message is that there's a difference between a, a bath and washing your feet. Jesus is saying there's a difference in that moment when you become born again, when I wash you clean with my blood. Right? When I forgive you of all of your sins, there's this one-time cleansing where you are now right with God because of what I've done. That's different than a foot washing. I believe he's talking about confession of sin that we should do every single day. Right? We don't have to rededicate our life to the Lord in the sense of saying like, oh, I'm going I'm to commit my life to the Lord and be born again, again. No, that happens once and we are washed and cleansed. But every day as we are sinning, We need to get right with the Lord as far as fellowship is concerned by confessing our sins. One is for salvation, one is for fellowship. I'm so thankful that Jesus didn't say, you have to have great holiness or else you have no part of me. Or "Or you need to be a Bible guru or you have no part of me. He doesn't say that. Having a relationship with Jesus starts by receiving something from him, his forgiveness, not achieving anything on our own. He wants to cleanse us. He wants to show us about what servanthood is all about. The ministry message about serving is that all who follow Jesus are obligated to serve like he served. He mandates this. Look at how he says, he says, I'm your Lord and teacher. I've washed your feet. You also should wash one another's feet. And he says, no servant is greater than his master. And so we're not allowed to say, when there's an opportunity to serve, oh, that's beneath me, that's below me, that's for, for lesser people. I'm not talking about, you know, we wanna serve in areas where we are gifted, right? If the Lord has given us a gifting, we should serve in those areas to be effective. But there are opportunities that will pop up throughout the week where we can just say, am I gonna serve here? Am I gonna serve my family? Am I gonna serve the church here? Am I gonna serve my neighbor? Or am I gonna let someone else take care of it? Those are opportunities we really need to think through and say, what would Keanu do? No, uh, sorry. What, what would the Lord have us do in that situation? Sometimes it's taking the lowest job. Sometimes it's saying, Oh, this is this is the nasty, disgusting job. I'm, go- I'm gonna do it so other people don't have to do this. When I was in the hospital, which could have been men of one, many different times this past couple of weeks, but I was in there for the uh, abscess that two weeks later after the appendix was removed and there was a complication. I was back in the hospital for three days. And so I was, I was pretty low as far as humbled and saying, my goodness, I just have no control over my health, it seems like. And as I was in the hospital, I was trying to talk with people, had some great conversations. And at one point, a lady walked in that just seemed upbeat and joyful. And she was the hospital housekeeper. Her name was Connie. And, and she walked in and immediately starts talking to me she goes, oh, what are you in for, kind of a thing, and I'm, and I'm telling her, and then she starts asking very specific questions, like, well, how many, how many kids do you have at home? I said, oh, I'm I married, I have three children at home, and she asked me their ages, and, and I know, tell her the names of the kids, and it was just sweet to talk about my family, and then after she's cleaning a bit out in my room, she goes into the bathroom, and I hear her, and I feel like the Lord allowed me to overhear her. I hear her begin to pray to the Father, as a Christian, and she says, oh, Lord, would you heal him and send him home so he could be with his kids? And I'm just like, oh my goodness. And for me, I just instantly thought of John 13 and the foot washing as this lady is cleaning my toilet. And in that moment, she's actually having a conversation with God about how he, she wants him to bless me. And I said, I, I hear you in there praying for me. <laughs> she goes, oh, oh, sorry, do you? And I said, no, that's amazing. And we talked and I thanked her so much for her encouragement. And it screamed John chapter 13 to me that she would not grumble about having to clean the bathroom but instead use it as a ministry opportunity taught me so much during that hospital visit. And so sometimes it's looking around and saying, what's the lowest job? I'm gonna volunteer to do it so that my wife doesn't have to do that. I'm going to jump in and help the kids you know, clean the playroom because I know they're overwhelmed and it's just going to be a disaster if I'm not in there helping them. What's the lowest job the Lord wants us to do? Sometimes a foot washing is anything we do to encourage others by washing away the, the filth of this world, the dirt, the dirt and dust of discouragement and the defeat that we just feel going through this life where people around us who aren't building us up in the Lord are just tearing us down. And then we get around other believers who are lifting us up, praying for us, and encouraging us, and reminding us of the truth. That's not easy to do. It is far easier to criticize than it is to wash somebody else's feet, than to bless them. Spurgeon made a great comparison about criticism and the Lord washing feet. I'm gonna put the quote on the screen. He said, In the world, they criticize. This is the business of the public press, and it is very much the business of private circles. Hear how gossips say, do you see that spot? What a terrible walk that man must have had this morning. Look at his feet. He has been very much in the mire, you can see, and there are traces of dirt upon him. That's the world's way. Christ's way is different. He says nothing but takes the basin and begins to wash away the stain. Do not judge and condemn, but seek restoration and the improvement of the erring. It can be human nature to criticize someone else when they are, when they are sinning and they're down and, they're, and things aren't just going right for them to say, oh, well, there must be a reason or why aren't they strong enough to overcome and to fight back against that sin? But that's not the Lord's work. The Lord telling us to wash one another's feet is much different. We would gladly wash the feet of Jesus after all he's done, but he says he wants us to wash one another's feet, one another's. And so what does that look like in our lives is something we should consider, and that's publicly and privately. A true disciple's going to serve. And in verse 21, we see Jesus continue, and it says this. says, he was troubled in his spirit and testified. Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple who Jesus loved, was reclining next to him, Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. We see here by a negative example and a positive example that a true disciple endures, endures to the end, continuing to believe in Jesus. This is something that 11 of the 12 apostles responded to the love of Jesus and endured, and then Judas is going to betray him. The reaction of the disciples is they're at a loss. They actually don't know who the traitor is. They're not aware of who this is. They look around and it can't be any of them. We all love Jesus. And we see from this passage that it breaks the heart of God when we reject his offer of salvation. It says it troubled Jesus. I believe because for Judas' sake, he loved Judas. He poured into him. Peter would go on later in life to say this in 2 Peter 3.9. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance God's heart is that no one would perish. He does not want that. His heart breaks for Judas. Imagine how it breaks for us. This is Judas we're talking about. And yet we see that Jesus loves us to the very end, even if we reject him. The very fact that Jesus said to the one, to the one whom I will give this piece of bread, and maybe he only said this to John, is Jesus showing love towards Judas, the dipping of the bread in a special meal designated honor. It was like asking someone to give a toast at a dinner. It was a courtesy that you would give someone else. Jesus is still trying to overcome evil with good. Think about this mind-blowing fact for a moment. Just a few minutes earlier, Jesus washed the feet of Judas. Sometimes we struggle to, to serve one another. We think that person's outside the boundaries. I shouldn't have to serve them without their acting. And then we think that Jesus washed the feet of Judas. Judas may have been in the chief seat at the right hand of, of Jesus here, because in Matthew's account, it shows that Jesus spoke to Judas discreetly. He even did all of this in, indirectly, Because the disciples didn't stand up and block Judas from going out saying, you won't betray Jesus. They were still confused about who it was after Jesus said this. This is all love from Jesus to Judas in these moments. And the love of God is meant to turn us back towards him. Paul says it like this in Romans 2. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? Not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. God is kind because He's kind, right? God is just good, but that goodness of God is designed to lead us towards repentance. God doesn't make sure that we double hear the law. We keep on hearing the law and we're shamed by guilt into following Him. He continues to be so good to us that our heart breaks when we realize the goodness of God, but Judas, Showed contempt for the goodness of God instead of melting at that. Now, endurance doesn't mean that you don't have any doubts or sin. Remember, Peter's in the room and he endures, even though he's about to deny Jesus in the next few moments. Peter's in the room, and even though he repents of denying Jesus in the future, Way in the future, he sins against the Galatians, and Paul has to stand up and rebuke him publicly and record it in Scripture that Peter was sinning. And so enduring to the end isn't not sinning. It's that we continue to declare Jesus is our Savior, even though we, we are a mess and we really need saving. Continue to declare that. Jesus is the only way towards the Father, right? We can't get ourselves there. We're not gonna be good enough to make ourselves there. This declaration is both in word and in deed. A lot of the times the assurance of salvation passages are connected to our deeds, right? Our actions, the fruit of the Spirit that comes besides the declaration. And so we can see that there's a transformation happening. Nobody transforms to perfect, but we begin to progress towards holiness and towards the Lord with seasons of slipping up and, and falling. It's a declaration of saying, no, I'm on the team with Jesus. When I was... Uh, 14, I joined the cross country team at my high school, mostly because I wanted to stay in shape for basketball season. Ended up being really good at it. My first race, my coach, there was 200 people lined up and, and I was drinking a Coca-Cola about 10 seconds before the race. And he almost took my head off because I just didn't know he weren't supposed to do that. And I took off, but I got fifth in that race. And so then he's like, maybe the Coca-Cola was a, a good dive idea before the race. But so I, I enjoyed running. I was good at it. But then there was this one race where it was towards the end of the season and I was just exhausted and it hurt. If, you, if you're a runner, you know there's like pain that just happens, your, your muscles just cramp in your stomach and your chest. And you, I had this pain and finally I was just like, I don't wanna run this race anymore. My ankle was already hurting and so I just kind of slowed down and phoned it in and just kind of jogged the rest of the way in. My coach was surprised I didn't do well. I'm like, oh, well, you know, my ankle is hurting. My stomach is kind of cramping. He goes, oh, okay. And it, and I ended up feeling so guilty that I didn't endure to the end, that after that season, I was like, I, I can't run cross country ever again. I don't wanna be on this team anymore. I don't wanna race anymore. But it was because I chose not to even talk about that mistake with other people that I just said, nope, I'm removing myself from this. And thankfully through basketball and the Lord, that character issue of not enduring was, was resolved and it was strengthened. But are we gonna get to the end of our life saying, no, I'm on team Jesus. Right. I love the Lord. He's still working on me. I'm still walking with him, though, despite my sins. Revelation 14 says, this calls for the patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. It's patient endurance, being patient with ourselves as we continue to slip. I thought the Lord gave me strength over this issue. I thought I was better than this. And then we continue to endure and walk towards the Lord. A true disciple is going to endure Till the end. And in verse 33, Jesus changes everything about a common guideline that he had already given when he said this. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, just as I told the Jews, so I will tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. And listen to this. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. A true disciple is going to love. We're gonna be known for love. Now the reaction, this is the worst reaction out of all of them, the reaction of the disciples to Jesus in his final moments saying, a new command I give you, love one another. Here's the reaction. They completely ignored it. If you look at the passage, they don't even mention it. Instead, they're like, wait, hold on. What about that, where are you going thing? They ignore the command to love and focus on the mystery, the thing they couldn't understand. They wanted to know that more than the simple command to love one another. The command actually isn't new, essentially. It's in the Old Testament. Jesus had said that that we should love one another and love your neighbor as yourself. But the newness of it is Jesus is telling us the extent to which we should love. Jesus says, as I have loved you, love one another. And in 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 a day or so when Jesus is going to be crucified, that will take on such new meaning. The extent to which we need to love other people when I, when I hear a sermon on love, when I read scriptures on love, my first thought is, I love people, right? And you say it confidently at first, and you're like, I, I, love, I love people, right? And then if you're bold enough, which we're not, we, we ask someone that knows us, you know, you ask your spouse or your friend, I, I love people, right? Like, am I, am I showing, is it obvious that I love other people? And we realize the extent that we love people needs to increase, we need to grow and we think, well, I don't have any more room in my heart to love people. I've, I've, I've maxed out, no, the Lord will grow our heart and give us a greater capacity to love other people if we ask him to do that. We have to go further in our love with others. That's a challenge to us. Yes, we're, we're loving others, but how can we go further in demonstrating God's love to them? It's a self-sacrificial love. And this is going to be the identifying mark of a true disciple. This is how people are gonna know, oh, you're a Christian, you love one another. My son Gideon has the coolest identifying mark on the planet. It's a birthmark right right above his knee on his thigh that we forget about for half of the year because it only comes out in the summer. So like all year long, he's got this like smooth skin. And then in the summer, there's like about the size of his fist. There's this giant white spot that comes out. I wish it looked like a state or something cool. We could kind of like label it. Or I told him in the future, she should get a tattoo around it and make it something awesome. But it, it is a hidden identifier on him that only his parents would know if it were the winter season. We joke as a family, as soon as we see it, we're like, all right, summer's here. Summer's here. Let's get the pool ready. It's summertime. And it's our little, little joke. But we, we know that about Gideon. The identifying mark for the believer is going to be sacrificial love. Convenient love is great to toss out, but sacrificial love is what Jesus has done for us. And specifically, at least in this passage, for the body of Christ, for other believers. There are lots of passages that talk about how we should love those that are far from God. But here it says that as people watch the church interact with the church, they will see love that will be different. Who's the one that brought you that meal? Who cleaned up your yard? Who helped you with that bill? Who prayed for you and sat with you and and heard your story? That's sacrificial, yes, we say. Let me tell you about the one that inspired us. His name is Jesus. A true disciple is going to love. That's not easy for us to do because we've redefined love, but Jesus defines it very specifically here as in serving, taking the lowest thing, and here as being sacrificial towards those that are around us. And this last genuine sign of a disciple, you've got to give me a minute to explain. Don't judge me before you let me explain it, but here's what it says. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay my life down for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay your life down for me? very truly I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. We see here in this passage, now don't judge me, a true disciple sins. A true disciple sins. Please don't take a screenshot until I'm done explaining, all right? Don't don't judge me. I'm not saying we should aspire after sinning. I'm saying Peter the great thinks that he's not going to sin. He thinks he's going to measure up. His reaction to Jesus is, no, it won't be me. I'm not going to be the one. I'm confident I'll pass the test. And yet Peter sins here. He's going to betray Jesus later that night. And then later on against the Galatians and and many times, just like all of us, he continues to be a sinner. I say it like this to encourage us that yes, even though we still struggle with sin, we can be a true disciple. Disciples are not sinless. In our battle, and it should be a battle against sin, we will experience both victory and failure, but we will look to the only sinless one, Jesus Christ, for him to cover our sins with his blood. Jesus is the only perfect one, not us, It's not parents are sinless and these little rotten kids need to, no, we we know that's not the case. Most of parenting is just calming down and recognizing you're impatient, right? And that we we are sinning in our parenting style. We're not sinless. But Peter is sincerely confident about his strength to not sin here. He's confident about it. I believe Peter. I believe Peter would have died for Jesus. This very night, he takes out a sword and cuts off the ear of Malchus as a mob is coming to arrest Jesus. He's about to die for him, right? He's got this bold, emotional feeling towards Jesus, but in this soon-to-come crisis, his emotions wouldn't be enough. His emotions would fail him. And if we don't wanna have painful moments of disowning Jesus like Peter, the only thing we can do, like like Peter had to learn at some point, is to take ownership of our seeking Jesus. We need to be intentional about how we seek the Lord. Are we gonna schedule out and figure, how are we gonna go through this book and learn more about Jesus? Are we gonna take time to talk to him in prayer? Right, Being intentional in seeking him, owning our relationship with the Lord. But the lesson from Peter is that overconfidence doesn't help us to not sin. Humility does. Overconfidence isn't the tool that we should use. Instead of making bold claims about our confidence that we're not gonna sin, we're not gonna do likewise, we should plead with the Lord for help and be aware of our weakness. It's okay to be aware of our weakness. It's, it's a strong fact that if we can recognize that we are sinners and we are aware of the areas of life that are most tempting to us, then humility can help us to fortify ourselves instead of an overconfidence. The Bible says, take heed lest you fall. It takes humility to pray as Jesus instructed us, lead us not into temptation from the Lord's prayer. It takes humility to say, Lord, without you, I I could lead myself right into temptation. Lord, would you lead me in a different direction because you know I'm probably not strong enough to encounter that temptation close up. So just lead me away from it. If there's a time when I'm strong enough, then yes, I'll, I'll encounter it and have victory, but just don't even let me be tempted, Lord. It takes humility to pray, to put on the armor of God from Ephesians chapter six and to recognize there is a spiritual warfare against us. It's not flesh and blood that we battle. Demons are real. Angels are real. And we need to say, Lord, fortify me. Lord, I put on the armor of God. Well, that takes humility to say, I need help. I need armor to put on. And it takes humility to pray about our sins with other people, to be vulnerable, it takes a lot of humility. We don't want that. Even in the first few months of a discipleship relationship, these one-year relationships that we encourage here at the church where you, you gather with three or four other people, you're on the same Bible reading plan, you're journaling and sharing your heart with other people, you're confessing sin one to another, you're getting to know each other in life. Even in a relationship like that, it takes months to actually feel like you've earned the trust and you trust the people around you and you're willing to confess your sins one to another. In the beginning, it's always the same sin. We're confessing, oh Lord, help me with pride. Oh yeah, pride, not lust, pride. Well, pride's easier to say. Pride's less awkward to say. And so we start there and then eventually we start opening up and say, this is where I'm weak. And in those moments, the Lord can bring healing to us as we confess our sins get the accountability and strengthening of brothers and sisters around us, and the Lord heals us from our sins. And so Jesus here shows us who he is behind closed doors, and he's pleading with his disciples saying, my last moments aren't giving one last big speech to the crowds that I'll be remembered by. It's pouring into the faithful few that are around me. He's telling them, you need to be genuine. When you mess up, you need to confess it. You need to be honest about it. The Bible is full of the errors of every human it talks about except for Jesus, because it's an honest book, because we don't have to pretend like we're perfect. We look to the perfect one. And so whether it's serving or or strengthening our endurance by, by God's grace alone or loving or confessing our sins, God wants us to be the same person behind the scenes that we are publicly. Often the greatest part of that battle is in, is in the home when you're expressing who you are really, when you're tired, when you're just kind of over it. You've been putting on a face all day at work and trying to be strong and trying to be respectful of other people. And then sometimes family can take the brunt of it when you're just exhausted. And the truth is we're just acting who we really are in those moments. That's where the transformation happens, at home, in private life. And Jesus is telling us, be encouraged. It can happen through my strength. He says it's so important that these are the last things he wants to say to his disciples. And so while it can feel overwhelming to try and embrace this, this is the life we want. We don't wanna be hypocrites, we don't wanna be fake. We wanna be sincere, transparent, and vulnerable with others so that we can love them and so that we can reach them for God. Jesus did it for us. Let's pray and ask him for strength. Father, would you please help us in these areas, Lord? I'm sure that your Holy Spirit is, is pointing one of them out. Love, serving, and endurance, or strength over sin, humility. Lord, would you show us what intentional steps you'd like us to take today, Lord? Lord, we want the world to look at believers and the church and say, "That's that's what's different." Not not celebrities that are that are doing good, Lord. Lord, may the church shine brightly for you. That may mean that we have to ask forgiveness and apologize for how we've acted to others in, in the church. It may mean that we need to step out of our comfort zone, but whatever it is, Lord, would you increase our love for one another so that we can be a bright, shining light for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Our prayer team's available. Hey, the Lord is awesome. Our prayer team uh, is available right now. We would love to pray for you. And so please join us up front for prayer.